Well, hello, class, and welcome to another episode of the TM245 Homiletics Podcast. Today, we're going to be spending a bit more time talking about preaching with cultural intelligence. Now, normally, this would be a class where we would be spending the majority of our time uh, working through classroom exercises and discussions to help you begin to think through your own assumptions and perspectives on everything from denominations to ethnicity to gender as you're preaching. Obviously, we're not able to dedicate that time to such efforts now. Uh, so instead, I am going to try and provide you a bit more content on cultural intelligence. As a whole, though, this is probably going to be a bit briefer of a lesson, as will our next lesson, which will be a lecture on preaching in particular contexts uh, like funerals and baptisms and weddings. All right. So um, as a result of this being a bit less formal. I don't actually have a complete PowerPoint up for today's lesson, so there is no PowerPoint 3.2, um, but I will start actually with a bit of content that we did not get to on PowerPoint 3.1. That is by design. So if you have 3.1 open, you can look at slide 5 and you see a diagram that can be used to explain in a bit more detail uh, how cultural intelligence works, generally speaking. Now, many of these ideas and concepts have been restructured by Kim and put into a format that is both, both helpful because of uh, the nice acronyms of dialect, for example, uh, that help us to remember them, and also helpful uh, because it is oriented toward preaching specifically. This will be a bit more abstract, but that means it will also extend to ministry opportunities behind those that you might have in preaching. Now, the point of this diagram is that uh, effective cross-cultural communication is going to require several things. Three main categories that I'm going to break down into some details. The first category is going to be certain attributes that you have developed within yourself. If you have these attributes, you are more likely to have an effective cross-cultural interaction. The second set of qualities that are needed pertain to your perceptions. So these are closely related, but not quite the same. Um, the third set of factors pertains to the nature of the encounter with someone who is different from yourself culturally. So let me see if I can walk through this and provide you a bit more understanding, and then I'll try and situate it within the context of preaching while talking through a few different examples. All right. First, you need to have certain qualities yourself. Uh, one of the most important ones uh, pertains to self-awareness. We need to be aware of ourselves before we can expect to be aware of others and their cultural circumstances. If you're aware of yourself, if you're aware of the emotions you may be feeling as you're involved in a cross-cultural interaction, or if you're aware of biases that you might have because of how you were raised, um, where you grew up in terms of location, uh, economic class, things like that. As you increase in awareness of yourself, it's more likely that you'll be able to identify places where uh, you are bringing baggage, so to speak, into a cross-cultural interaction. If you're not aware of yourself and you don't realize the psychological factors behind some of your beliefs and assumptions, then you'll just assume that what's actually culture is a universal truth and you'll impose that on someone else and that will result 
in an ineffective cross-cultural interaction. Several other things about yourself that are important. Empathy. Do you have the ability to sympathize and empathize with what other people are experiencing? Are you able to tell uh, what their emotions may be in response to what you're saying? It's hard to think of something more problematic in ministry than a pastor who preaches a sermon and believes it was a home run and is unable to identify the nonverbal cues of his congregation during the sermon or afterwards as they're shaking hands and leaving the church maybe to realize that maybe his home run sermon was really more of a strikeout. In order to understand yourself, you'll need to have a strong grasp on your own identity and your own values. You'll need to have developed the ability to communicate clearly in any context. It's partly what this homiletics class is about. And ultimately, you'll need a lot of preparation and education. Even this book, Preaching with Cross-Cultural Intelligence, can't do very much to help you prepare for specific cultures you may find yourself in, whether that's on the mission field or whether you find yourself, rather than ministering in Sterling, Kansas, ministering uh, somewhere like Dallas, Texas, a much more urban location um, with some denominational differences, statistically speaking, that are likely to pop up there. The best way to prepare is to listen. Ask questions. Once you've built some rapport, you know, don't walk up to a stranger and say, hey, tell me what it's like to be uh, a poor Latina woman here. She's going to feel pretty uncomfortable. Um, but once you've built connection, listen to people's stories. Before you've built those connections, read books, read memoirs from individuals who were raised in the sorts of community that you're ministering to. All of these are ways that you can prepare yourself to have the right abilities um, and qualities to succeed in cross-cultural communication. But even if you have such training, such self-awareness, and such empathy, you may still fail in a cross-cultural interaction because of the framework or heuristic you're using to interpret the other. So it's equally important that you learn to analyze the situations of others through appropriate narratives and interpretations. So what do I mean by that? One risk of doing cross-cultural work, and we've seen this in a number of places in Kim's book, is that you might have something of a stereotype or caricature to illustrate a point that winds up being treated as representative of an entire group of peoples. For example, in the chapter that Kim writes on location, he writes about three somewhat stereotypical individuals, one who lives in a rural context, one who lives in a suburban context, and one who lives in an urban context. Now he admits that these are simplistic, they don't represent the entire diversity within those locational communities, um, and that they're based on statistics and are a bit simplifying. Nevertheless, he uses them to illustrate a point. However, you may fail to recognize that these sorts of things are illustrations, and you might wind up with a narrative of what you expect from certain individuals you may encounter in a rural context, for example. In that case, your narrative and your assumption about how the other will act might cause you to interpret their actions in ways that are in fact not fitting at all with the reality that they're living. It's important to have several different possible narratives that you can use to try and understand how someone might understand your words or your actions. 
And as a result of these narratives, you need to be willing to be flexible and cautious as you respond to the other individual. Finally, we can think about the encounter. What does it take for there to be a successful cross-cultural interaction? Well, not only do you need to have certain qualities like education and empathy and the right framework for analyzing the other through an accurate narrative and interpretation, but even if you have those things, if the encounter takes place in an unacceptable way, you will not have an effective cross-cultural interaction. So how long are you able to interact with this individual? If I were a guest preacher that went in to preach in a rural Vietnamese Christian congregation, I would probably be extremely unsuccessful, having only been there once, If even if I had educated myself by reading about the plight of rural Vietnamese Christians uh, as a result of various civil wars and persecutions that have been happening in that region. Um, I'm making this up as I go. I clearly know nothing about... Uh, rural Vietnamese Christians. But even if I were educated there and I went in, I don't have a long enough duration to be there to build trust. So frequency of preaching and serving and personal contact will build trust, which makes it more likely that if you commit some sort of faux pas, that uh, you'll be able to survive it in ministry. Uh, duration of interaction and building of trust will make it so that the other person will have a more positive narrative in interpreting your actions. If you say something that makes them uncomfortable, rather than saying this person is clueless, this person doesn't care, perhaps even this person is prejudiced, they might say, well, I know this person is genuinely trying. They might just be ignorant in this area. I should talk to them and raise my concern. The narrative that you can establish through duration and trust is extremely important. Equally important, is the purpose of the encounter. So obviously in the context of preaching, your purpose is to preach a sermon, but we can also ask the question, is your purpose intended to make people in your congregation who are different from you so that they think like you, or is your purpose to preach the word of God in a manner that it might be accepted to people who are different from you, and perhaps whom God intends to keep different from you? when it comes to culture and experience and location and so forth and so on. That purpose is an extremely important component of successful preaching in a cross-cultural context. So what does all of this look like when we turn to an actual sermon that's delivered? Well, here I can provide a couple of different examples and for now I'm going to hone in at least on um, questions of gender. There are many books that have been written about Christian ministry to women, uh, many of them that are targeted to women and that I've really not read. Uh, but some that I found particularly helpful are the writings of feminist theologians. Now, there are a number of places where I would object to feminist theology and methodology and so forth and so on. We're not going to get into the details of that systematic theology. I have other classes where I go there. Um, just in the same way, we're not going to get into the details of the theology of Bart that I presented earlier in terms of preaching. We do that elsewhere. Instead, we're going to focus on the strengths of this the theological perspective in that they really lead the pack in thinking about the way that the delivery 
of theological ideas might have a different impact on different genders. I'll give you three really quick examples here from feminist theology. The first is the example of preaching on a text about your body being a temple. Good text, 1 Corinthians 6. Culturally, the United States, a significantly disproportionate amount of emphasis is put on the appearance of women. Um, the sexualization and objectification of women in advertising, in Hollywood, and various other forms of media contributes to this. Uh, certain narratives about ideal body types and certain assumptions about what it means if you don't have that body type can create strong social pressure and peer pressure for individuals to feel like they have to conform to a certain style or pattern that isn't necessarily biologically or psychologically healthy. In a context like this, where a male pastor might be preaching, such as myself, where, frankly, uh, men are not objectified in this manner, nor do I ever really experience much social pressure to look a certain way physically, I might not realize the way that speaking about the body as a temple and talking about care of the body might reinforce some culturally destructive thought patterns, such as enabling individuals who are struggling with an eating disorder to continue to think wrongly about the nature of the body that God has given them as a gift. If I don't think about these potential uh, struggles that women in the United States are statistically far more likely to experience, um, then I'm more likely to do damage there. But if I'm able to stop and think about how my sermon might uh, be perceived, I can correct things. So what does this involve? First of all, it involves some preparation and education. I need if I'm going to preach on this, part of my sermon prep might be involving, might involve uh, researching a little bit about what our typical thought process is like for someone who's experiencing an eating disorder. Uh, what does that involve? I need to have a degree of empathy where I can imagine uh, stepping into someone's shoes who might be struggling with this sort of con concept. And then I need to have several different narratives that I can have in mind. I can interpret and imagine an individual in the pews who needs to be told to take care of their bodies because perhaps uh, they're facing uh, heart disease for lack of exercise and care. And perhaps this will have an impact on their family, uh, on their ministry opportunities, on their personal well-being. But I need to add other narratives and imagine how might this sermon be received to an individual that actually exercises quite frequently but struggles with bulimia. The application I would need to provide in that context would be quite different. And because I have these different narratives about the other, I can therefore preach on 1 Corinthians 6, speaking of the body as a temple, and apply these ideas through various different application examples. Um, by the way, exegetical footnote here. Um, Feminist theology raises this critique because so often this idea of your body being a temple is used in terms of taking care of your body, but exegetically, actually, 1 Corinthians 6 is referring more to uh, sexual sin. So I'm naming a cultural example here from sermons that I've even heard preached before, but really, if you turn that into my class, I'd be saying, hold on a second, the exegesis isn't quite right. Okay, that is one example. Let's turn to another example. Feminist theology has placed considerable emphasis on questions about how we discuss the atonement 
and particularly the cross. So when we're looking at the cross, penal substitutionary atonement suggests that God punishes Christ. There are various different theological works that we could read. I've assigned some in contemporary Christian thought in the past, and unfortunately nobody signed up this semester, so I didn't get to use it again. But theologies that suggest because God is simple, that is because he is not made of parts, and therefore all of his attributes are fundamentally the same, that we can argue that God's wrath is actually a manifestation of his love against sin. In other words, we can't say, oh, part of God is angry and part of God is loving. We can say all of God is perfectly loving, and when God's perfect love encounters sin, it is experienced as wrath because love comes against sin forcefully. Good theology. Sound theology, as far as I'm concerned. And yet, in a pastoral context, were I to structure a sermon around this idea that God's love is actually manifest in his wrath, as poured out on punishment of the Son, we can create certain problems for abused women. Now, I should admit, statistically speaking, there are men who are abused by women just as there are women who are abused by men. Statistically speaking, it appears to be the case that abuse of women is far more prevalent, though some argue that the, the difference there is not quite as wide as the numbers show because many men might not feel comfortable admitting uh, violence from their wives. Having set aside that data for the moment, though, feminist theology has rightly raised the question of how these sorts of ideas might fall on the ears of someone who is being abused, which, given how frequent that is, should be a perennial concern of preachers. If you are preaching that the wrath of God is a manifestation of love, feminist theology worries that some women who are being abused and experiencing wrath on a human level might justify their negative experiences by saying, oh, deep down he does love me and that's why he gets so angry when I do wrong. Feminist theology has argued this can create a thought pattern where a woman blames herself for the abuse rather than blaming the abuser. And in fact, within in society, uh, there are plenty of examples, and this is a widespread phenomenon, unfortunately, of women who have been abused or been assaulted being blamed rather than the perpetrator. So there are cultural patterns that would reinforce this. If you preach on what this sound theology is without being aware of these misinterpretations, you can have some problems. You can actually preach sound theology that results in reinforcing sinful practices. Now, of course, you would never intend this, but you have to have what's known as other awareness to recognize this. How might someone else in the audience misinterpret what you're saying to reinforce evil? What values and expectations do you have that might not be held by other men in the congregation or by other women in the congregation? Um, how can you step into the shoes of someone who might be abused. Now, the astute listener has probably noticed that so far these examples, I've all been speaking to you as if um, you were a man, unable to empathize with a woman. In reality, though, the majority of our class, of course, consists of women who will then have to empathize with a man. That sort of imbalance there 
uh, is for two reasons. First, obviously, as a man, I can illustrate what I have to do in order to understand women that I might be preaching to. Um, but also maybe that experience that many of the women in the class had where they're listening and they say, he is speaking with these examples and they're not really about me. Um, whoever your default audience is, if you repeatedly are talking about applications that are clearly more for men or clearly more for people who live in the city and not in a rural area, clearly more uh, for Latin American immigrants and not for um, black Americans who have been in this country for generations and so forth and so on. Whoever your default application group is, um, if over time, so through that duration, if it's not a particular group in your church, then you're going to lose trust. Um, and it's going to make it so it's quite difficult for you to successfully preach to that demographic when you do intentionally try on rare occasion. Um, so be careful. Try and diversify your application examples um, and try and imagine what groups in your church you might be neglecting on a frequent basis and modify your teaching and your sermons accordingly. And when you make a mistake, name it and try and change it. Okay, that's the further information I have for you on preaching with cultural intelligence. I've hope, I hope you've enjoyed the book. As it turns out, this was not much shorter of a lecture um, by the time I unpacked everything. It's all right, though. I'm certain the next one will be. Have a great rest of your week and be well.